You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Barbara Dubois, Ph.D. Barbara is a longtime teacher in the Tibetan Buddha Dharma and the author of the recently published Brave, Generous, and Undefended Heart Teachings of the 37 Bodhisattva Practices from White Cloud Press. We'll get started with that conversation after a short musical break. Musical selections on today's program are from a CD called Lama Gyurme and Jean-Philippe Requiel, Reign of Blessings, Vajra Chants. Yeah. 
This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development of reason. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mindy Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. Good to be here. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Barbara Dubois. Barbara Dubois, Ph.D., longtime teacher of Buddha Dharma, is known for clarity, freshness, humor, and fearless love with which she shines a frank Western light on the path. Her principal gurus are Padmasambhava, Milarepa, Machig, H. H. Dujam Rinpoche, and H. E. Garchen Rinpoche. Barbara's lifetime of service includes work with disarmament, African refugees from colonial regimes and genocide, United Nations social development, feminist scholarship, and teaching and initiating an indigenous women's peace movement during an active civil war in Africa. She holds a, a doctorate from Harvard University and has taught at undergraduate and graduate levels as a social scientist, psychologist, and psychotherapist. Barbara is also a visual artist and author of Light Years, a spiritual memoir from 2011, and the newly published book, Brave, Generous, and Undefended, Heart Teachings of the 37 Bodhisattva Practices. She currently resides in Arizona. Barbara Dubois, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you very much, Stuart. I'm really happy to be here again with you. But we're excited to have you back. It's been a while. I think the last time you were on, we uh, talked about Light Years, which I think uh, had been recently published. And mm-hmm. we're really excited to talk about this uh, newest book. But, uh, but before we jump into that, um, I just want to offer you the opportunity to uh, discuss um, what you've been up to in the years since uh, light years and the recent publication of Brave, Generous, and Undefended. I know you've been uh, studying um, uh, assiduously as well as presumably writing assiduously because otherwise you couldn't have produced this book. So uh, anything else you want to uh, tell our listeners about to update them on what you've been up to? Well, thank you. I wasn't anticipating that invitation, so I have nothing prepared. But I will say that... Uh, Sometimes when I say the title of this new book, Brave, Generous, and Undefended, it comes out brave, generous, and unintended. (laughs) 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 I like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's sort of what I've been up to since we last uh, spent time together in Sebastopol. Um, You know, I moved from the southwest to California because, who knows why, it was time to leave the Southwest, and California called, and there was, you know, a, a, some interest in my coming. And uh, when I got there, I had a wonderful two years. I, it was two years to the day that I was there, mm. totally unintended. And uh, I didn't know why I was leaving, except that my time was up. And it was indicated that I was to come back to the Southwest, so I started driving. And I ended up in in the same place I had come from in order to go to California. Mm-hmm. All of that is unintended. And since I've been back, um, I don't even think of it as being back. I changed a lot in the two years I was in California. Mm-hmm. 
including breaking a hip, which was like being dropped on the ground to be reorganized in some way that, you know, these kinds of sort of catastrophic things don't, we don't plan them. They're unintended in the most profound way, and the results are un- cannot be anticipated. So I felt as if I were uh, walking on new soil when I returned to the Southwest, but somehow the way I was walking was very uh, grounded in a way I don't think I had been before. Very, very grounded. Hmm. So my life here has been quite different than it was before. I I did uh, I was requested to come and start teaching again at the Garson Institute, which is a Tibetan Buddhist um, retreat and teaching center in Chino Valley, Arizona. It's the western seat of my lama, his eminence, Garchen Rinpoche, who's one of the great bodhisattvas of our time, truly the embodiment of love and uh, wisdom and their union. And uh, so I am really in his backyard, and so it's very easy for me to uh, go back and forth. Even now during pandemia, I'm able to go up there to teach, and it gives a global reach because as many of the Dharma centers are, as you know, closed, um, many of them are also giving teachings worldwide by, uh, you know, electronic means. So um, I have been not so much studying in book learning, um, Mm -hmm. but studying that which I already know in a deeper way uh, in order to um, be able to transmit it at a higher level and more um, transparently because what you know what I know uh, in the Dharma is really always brand new always brand new and uh, there's no there's no confidence. I have no confidence that I will be able to have any kind of an intellectual discussion with anybody about the Buddha Dharma. I have to be in that mind of Dharma in order to even function with others in a helpful way or meaningful way. And certainly uh, to bring this book forward um, was a tremendous intellectual challenge, but it was really a more pro- profound spiritual challenge and challenge of practice and understanding um, it's the entire Buddha Dharma the 37 Bodhisattva practices were written by a, a 14th century Tibetan monk named Tokme Zangpo and it's a distillation in 37 very short very succinct verses of the of the essence meaning of the Buddha Dharma uh, from the beginning to the end in other words from inception of path to completion and imagine my uh, quandary at being, first of all, asked to write such a book and then encouraged and, and then insisted upon, it was insisted upon by my mama that I finish it when I felt I just wasn't qualified. But the main, <laughs> the main instrument of accomplishment, I believe, was not study in the formal sense, but um, really asking to learn again from uh, really asking to learn again asking to understand again or deep more deeply Mm -hmm. so i had many years ago known a a very wonderful young boy who um, as a toddler when he wanted to pull a drawer out he would grab hold of it and say pull out come out 
And if he wanted to put something in a box, for example, you know, as toddlers like to play with things like that, he would say, if it was hard to get it in or to fit, he would say, go in, go in. So as I would sit at my desk at my computer, uh, thinking noble and great thoughts, uh, I was also reading uh, the commentaries on this uh, uh, on this teaching, the 37 Bodhisattva practices. I, I was studying those with you know with great uh, great interest and great need and great love. And I would find myself sitting at my desk and. I would pick up the book I was currently working on, studying, you know, in order to lend some light to my own endeavors, and I would find myself with the book on the top of my head, tapping it on the top of my head, saying, go in, go in. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the way I studied. (laughs) Uh, Well, it's, uh, I mean, of course, uh, it's, uh, I think... um a phenomenon that that anyone who teaches knows um, on a, on any level in any in any um, area, which is that um, you have to know something more deeply to be able to teach it than you thought you knew it when you were a student thereof. And so, and so, returning to student mind, returning to open mind, returning to beginning mind is. Uh, makes sense, of course. It's interesting that um, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that that there are many commentaries on the 37 Bodhisattva practices because it's. I mean, I'm not that familiar with the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, but I've heard and seen, of course, in our bookstore uh, as well, um, books about um, this this particular text, and um, and and it seems clear to me that. That your teacher, well, more than invited you to write this book um, precisely because you're an American with a certain experience and a certain Mm -hmm. capacity and and he wanted to have the commentary translated through your um, capacities. Uh, at least that's how that's that's how it's occurring to me. I, I mean, I'm I'm I don't know if he ever put it to you that way, but I'd be interested to know. Well, he he did in essence when I first came to to study with him. This is many years ago now. He he just he said, "Please help my disciples." So this is what he's been asking me to do all these years. So this was a continuation of that. Mm. But it's also true that. Um, he had to give me a good kick to get me to finish it because I was really abject. I just felt, I mean, I was reading these illuminating, luminous commentaries by the great masters. I mean, there's a strong commentarial tradition of the great masters write a commentary on this text. I'm not one of those great masters, but I did write a commentary on the text. But I see. Uh, there was a, uh, a point where I just felt I, I really wasn't qualified to continue. And <laughs> he, did, he said, Exactly what a bodhisattva would need to have said directly in order to just ease too. He said, Barbara, if you have the Dharma and you don't give it, that is self-grasping. Yeah, very, exactly. Very good point. Well, I'm also reminded um, of um, Sturzen, my good friend, um, a student of uh, Lee Loswick, um, and yes. you're familiar with their community, uh, Red Hawk. And I know that he was given the task of writing a book um, on uh, the Fourth Way, which he had also studied much uh, uh, quite uh, assiduously early in life. And he, I think he was given a time frame of like three months to write this book. 
I mean, it's a slimmer volume than Brave, Generous, and Undefended, to, to be fair. <laughs> but, but it was a task. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to you, – you, you kind of mentioned the commentarial tradition and – I think it's interesting to speak about the way this book is framed, that the you refer to pith teachings, and really when you read the 37 uh, stanzas of the Bodhisattva practices, they, they are very short, uh, mm-hmm. and yet you can unpack them endlessly. I mean, you can spend lifetimes unpacking them, and I think the uh, uh, what, what I find interesting in the book is that, you know, you... Your commentary is an unpacking, not only unpacking of the meaning as it relates to your understanding and your experience, but also you include questions and answers with students so that you can, you know, further that conversation with a mm-hmm. group of people. Mm-hmm. Yes. The, the, um, the fact is that for maybe 10, 12 years or more, I was teaching on this material with my students. And so some of what you read in Brave, Generous, and Undefended are actual uh, transcripts uh, uh, edited right. and, and amplified and deepened, but um, but, but they um, but the freshness of the dialogue in those in those gatherings with students mm-hmm. reading this text, which is so profound and immediately challenging to one's life or the way one leads one's life, uh, the the freshness of that of the uh, genuineness of the emotions and confusions that people brought openly for discussion was very moving to me mm-hmm. and so um, I was very happy that I had a uh, the I had transcripts that I could uh, really work with to bring into the the commentary this this uh, percolation process that students were experiencing uh, it makes it very um, not only just contemporary but it makes it very uh, it conveys the urgency with which uh, they attended those teachings and took them for their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, the questions are very, sometimes very, they're very personal, very intimate discussions. For example, with the woman who had the degenerative disease, for mm-hmm. example, I mean, that was life and death stuff she was talking about because she was living it right. really day to day. And there it is on the page for us to share with her and to experience with her what it's like to be in that state and also studying the bodhisattva path. And what does it mean to be a bodhisattva who daily is confronted with the possibility of dying, and certainly the probability of dying sooner rather than later. And um, it was it, when I reread those sections, of course I remember who the people were in mm-hmm. some cases who pose certain questions, but the questions feel as if they're being posed right now. Right. They're that immediate in their impact for me, even now. So maybe it would be useful for, since some of uh, the listeners for this show may not be as uh, steeped in some of the language as someone who has the fortune of reading your book, um, maybe we hear the term bodhisattva. Uh, Maybe Mm -hmm. in your words you could start by describing what is the bodhisattva way, and and we'll unpack from there because that that and that that could probably take us all day, but uh, we'll try to at least frame that up so people understand the context of the uh, commentary here. I would love to do that. Thank you very much for inviting me to do that, Stuart. Now, I'm not a philologist, and I don't uh, I don't have Sanskrit skill or Tibetan language, but uh, it certainly is pretty much. 
I think, commonly said that Bodhi means enlightenment or ultimate wisdom, and so, and uh, the Sattva is a being of ultimate wisdom. So a Bodhisattva is one who has attained the ultimate. Um, and even to say that introduces the question, well, what is the ultimate? Uh, and how do we, why do we think there is something beyond this? We're not going to go there right now. It's <laughs> released to here. But we, let's stipulate, uh, or in the words of the great Gilgo Kenshi Rinpoche, one of my teachers in years ago, um, that we do need to have, a, have courage to recognize that there is indeed a, let, let's say, a, a wisdom or a beingness, um, a state of um, ultimate uh, realization of the nature of reality that is beyond the capacity of our intellect. Uh, so let's just say that that let's let's stipulate that. And so a bodhisattva is someone who is on the path to that realization. The intention, though, is not the intention to awaken for one's own benefit and liberation and freedom from ignorance and confusion and suffering. But the intention of the bodhisattva walking the ultimate path is the intention to awaken in order to become a liberator of all. So Another. this is called the the altruistic intention, not an altruistic intention, but the altruistic intention. Um, but so the entire intention and uh, aspiration of the bodhisattva path is indeed to liberate oneself from confusion and ignorance and the uh, afflictions of uh, of habituated emotions and. Uh, uh, arbitrary thought forms that we take to be absolutes, uh, but which come and go like politics in the fall, uh, and and instead to seek within one's own mind and within the state of um, existential reality that we abide in, to seek um, the, the understanding uh, the comprehension, the insight, the realization uh, of the true nature of reality. Um, and when that reality is penetrated or pierced by, uh, by that intention, um, it's seen to be um, uh, empty of intrinsic existence and effulgent with love. So it's open, spacious, and limitless, uh, and its very nature is the nature of limitless love. So this being whom we call a bodhisattva, some say everybody is a bodhisattva because at heart everybody has a good heart. So that is true, I think, and yet the conscious choice to enter upon the bodhisattva path is the conscious choice and intention, lifetime to lifetime from that moment on, to live one's life for the benefit of others, for the benefit of all. And it, we start with specific others, because we start with what we know, and gradually the capacity to love and, and care for and have uh, limitless compassion for all beings grows in us. And there are practices and, of course, studies and and training that help us uh, expand that love capacity to become truly universal 
um, we know that we're not at that state now, um, and we know that we have met some beings who are. So between where I am right now and where my Lama is, there's the path I walk. And I walk it in his footsteps and in the footsteps of all who've gone before on the path of the Bodhisattva. And the great love that the Bodhisattva is motivated by and, and reaching for, uh, progressing toward, is called bodhicitta. That's just and what the, I was going to ask you to explain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and that means, that means wisdom mind. Yes, enlightenment mind. It's the mind bent on enlightenment for the benefit of all, for the liberation of all. And bodhicitta is relative bodhicitta that we practice in our present-day lives in the realm of existence. And then absolute bodhicitta is, is the enlightened nature itself. So the um, invocation of or the cultivation of bodhicitta leads to the beingness of the bodhisattva. Is that... Would, would, is, am I understanding that correctly? Could you say that again, Stuart? That, I, that, I think I missed the last part. So the the invocation or the uh, um, uh, bringing in of bodhicitta, the cultivation of bodhicitta, leads to being a bodhisattva. It's it, it, in a way, it's um, that that yeah. I guess that's why I'm trying to understand that relationship. Well, you you could say. Um, or I could say of you, I could say of you, as I could say of myself, uh, I am a bodhisattva, you are a bodhisattva, mm -hmm. uh, and you may or may not be consciously cultivating bodhicitta, but you are certainly consciously cultivating the love and uh, compassion that allow you to be of benefit to beings. So th there's levels and levels and levels of bodhisattva development, and, uh, and bodhicitta we, you know what we could say in a simple way? That the ground of path is bodhicitta, the intention to awaken that great love in oneself and others uh, for, for all beings to liberate into the natural state, we call it, the ultimate state. Mm -hmm. So that's the ground of the path. And it's also the method of the path. Um, the method is to cultivate bodhicitta and always to grow your bodhicitta instead of grow your self-interest and self-reference. Yeah. Right, and uh, the uh, and the fruit of the path is bodhicitta, so, the ultimate so, bodhicitta. So you made a comment I didn't quite follow, which is uh, that I could be uh, practicing loving kindness and uh, working for the welfare of beings, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm cultivating bodhicitta. Or, well, some would say it does. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, but there's more, there's levels and levels of conscious intention, as we all know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you could be cultivating loving kindness, uh, and then I would want to urge you to also cultivate love. <laughs> you know, to step it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you, so you think of it more, so in that sense, it's more of a, a, a full-consuming uh, expression as opposed to doing nice things but having some distance being fully you know in a sense in contact and being uh, recognizing the non-separation between me and another well the the only obstacle the only obstacle or obscuration between us and being wide awake so to speak is our grasping to the notion that we are that that self exists mm -hmm. 
as an as a intrinsic has an intrinsic existence, and 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 all of the behaviors of body, speech, and mind that arise from that mistake, it's an innocent error. It it comes with the territory of being being born into samsara. It's not not something we invent or, or but once there is the existence of self in one's own consciousness, there's instantly the existence of other. Right. And it, 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 I mean, it's practically simultaneous. And at at that point, the dualistic mind tendency is is very is very much present and alive. And the choice then, almost invariably, at lower stages of human development, is to focus on the self as being the center of the universe. If you make others the center of the universe, you're freed of suffering. But there's a long training between I am the center of the universe and others are the center of the universe, meaning in terms of importance and focus. Right. There's a long training between those two points. <laughs> and so um, the, the we are bodhisattvas from the moment we have our first uh, thought of caring for another, I think. I mean, a bodhisattva, you don't have a degree ceremony and, you know, certain levels of accomplishment in order to be called a bodhisattva, but there are levels of development on the bodhisattva path, and those are beautifully described in some of the traditional literature of the Tibetan tradition. Um, and uh, each of them is like, uh, is a, a diminution of self-grasping and an expansion of love for others. Got it. So, um, so let's get into the the um, the text itself and how you how you uh, uh, create the commentary around it. You have you uh, um, you have the the uh, let's see. I haven't actually counted the number of pages. It's like uh, five pages long. The root text, um, and uh, and then it's of course divided up into these thirty seven. I don't know if it's aphorism is the right term for it, but uh, these short little statements. These are the pith instructions. Yeah, yes, right. Thirty-seven verses. Right. So, um, so I'm. Um, I could I could ask you to give a give an overview of the of the way they're divided up. You discuss that in the in the book, or we could just start talking about the first few and see see how the those work. Like. Um, um, you know the second one and the third one, and the and the fourth one are all about <laughs> are all about attachment and letting go uh-huh. of things. You know when ne- so number three is when negative places are abandoned, disturbing emotions will gradually de- decline. Without distractions, attention to virtue naturally grows. So that's in, in other words, there's kind of a theme. They're the, they're, uh, to me, at least, as, as, I, as I read them, as I read your commentary on them, they're kind of thematically um, organized. Is that is that? Would you agree with that statement? Uh, yes, but they could be thematically organized in a number of different ways. I mm-hmm. mean, okay. there's not just one one way of organizing. I think, but but I think um, actually, I, I would be very curious. I, I know you're the interviewers, and I should probably just be quiet, but. And, and so you asked me to respond to something, but you are readers of this book, and mm-hmm. I wonder if there uh, w- was for you, for example, a verse that really 
uh, you found yourself challenged by or or moved by or stirred by or inspired by. Um, for me, for example, there are certain verses that are just the essence of this teaching. And when I read them, I understand why it was written. I understand that it was written for me. I understand what I'm supposed to do with it. And it, it just refreshes my intention and my aspiration and my courage. So it, there are a couple of verses like that that are just the essence of this teaching. Yeah, I, I vote for number 11. Stuart, what, what's your... Which one is 11? That's, that's um, all suffering without exception comes from seeking your own happiness. The perfect Buddhas are born from the altruistic mind. Therefore, truly exchange your own happiness for the suffering of others. This is the way of a bodhisattva. Yeah, and, I, and I'll, I'll second that in that it was a series, actually, and it was more the commentary that I found uh, particularly interesting, and that was the discussion about karma, which obviously this, this uh, particular uh, verse uh, opens the door to. Uh, because I think that that's a difficult concept for Westerners to get their heads around, and yet I think that karma or karma, the, the karma, karma, karma at least as you discuss it, as you discuss this, it in the commentary. Yeah, because I mean, I think the the uh, the verses in that section actually uh, open that open that discussion up, and that. I got a lot out of that because I thought uh, you brought it into a modern context uh, very well. So, in that sense, I, I, I'm interested in, you know, maybe discussing a little bit how you approach this notion of karma for a Western ear, for a um, uh, Western practitioner's ear, because that's that's the, um, I think that in the, in these days. Um, actually, I think it um, is very important because uh, yeah. we are we are all invited to face the present moment, and uh, yeah. and there is some very 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 strong affect that people are identifying with across the political spectrums in this moment, mm -hmm. and that's that will have consequences. So yeah. so that's that's an area that I, I'm interested in in maybe engaging on. Well, I. I, I could really be delighted to speak a bit about 11 and 8, verse 11 and verse 8. Verse 8 is the one on karma, and verse 11 is the one that um, Rob votes for. And, and Rob, I would say, uh, Garchan Rinpoche votes for verse 11 as well, as, and so do I, <laughs> as being the, the essence teaching here. All and, right. And, it's a quorum. And, and, <laughs> and it's, yeah, you're, you're right in tune. So, so the, I mean, if we talk about, if we can say a statement like all suffering without exception comes from seeking your own happiness, Mm -hmm. um, if, if that were all we needed to know, and then somebody could teach us how to look within to see when we are and when we are not seeking our own happiness, we would then master karma. Um, it is possible to see what's arising in your mind. So it's possible to see your motivation. Um, and when we say all suffering without exception comes from seeking your own happiness, what we're saying is that uh, that limited view of self-interest, self-reference and self-interest and self-cherishing um, is certain 
to bring suffering eventually, even though in the immediate term it may look as if it brings happiness. For example, you might get rich, uh, or you might have, you know, have a, I can't even think of another example, getting rich is good enough. So, uh, and then, but that's without having any uh, understanding that down the road, uh, that the rich, the riches that you accumulate are temporary and adventitious, and uh, down the road you will suffer from their loss in one way or another. And in the time that you hold those riches, you will suffer from having to hold tight to them because other people are trying to get them, and so on. That suffering is inherent in the result that arises from self-grasping. That's just a, it's a funny little example. I wouldn't have normally chosen that one, but it's not bad for the moment. And um, But at a deeper level, choosing oneself over others means that one is always fixated on one's own well-being, one's own desires, one's own satisfactions, and the view becomes narrower and narrower. And that kind of narrow fixation is suffering. Mm. It means that one's emotions are arising uh, in, in, in distorted view of what reality actually has to show us, and one's thoughts become increasingly narrow and um, constipated, if I might use that word, impacted, you know, within the system of the self, and uh, the things that bring uh, a lasting happiness, lasting for a while at least, since nothing lasts in existential reality, but uh, the kinds of things that we know um, bring joy, I think many people would agree, even people who are not spiritual students, and although we're all on the spiritual path, I, I do think, but we're not all studying consciously and training consciously, but um, I'm almost sure I lost the thread of that thought. Let me just see if I can catch it again as it floats away. Oh, uh, so the narrow view that's focused on the self is also focused on I want, I don't want. Mm -hmm. I love, I hate, I approve of, I disapprove of. It's, it's uh, a binary existence. Um, a an existence based in the dualism of self and other, I and others. The I, me, mine is ascendant. And wherever the I, me, mine is ascendant, uh, there is uh, suffering in the nature, in the condition of that mind, there is suffering because it's so narrow, it's so rigid, it's so fixated, and uh, disappointment is around every turn. If either one is in, is in triumph or one is terribly disappointed. Either one is in a state of dominance or one's in a state of submission or subordination. It's really a, a painful, painful way to live. And I think people who catch a glimpse of that fact, um, certainly when I saw for the first time how constricted my reality was in the uh, in the context of this self-grasping that is our natural, naturally arising confused state, uh, I was mortified and frightened. I was quite frightened because I didn't know how to get out of it. And um, 
to be told to love is uh, easy. It's easy to say that. It's not so easy to shift gears in that fundamental way. But the training of the mind on the Bodhisattva path teaches and demonstrates that the more we think of others, the less we think of ourselves. And the more we think of others and the more self-grasping uh, uh, diminishes, the greater the capacity for love, the greater the capacity for joy and gratitude and praise and relaxation. You can't be relaxed if you're always seeking your self-interest. There's very little relaxation in that, except, you know, maybe for an hour or two on the tennis court after you played a good match or something. But it's all fleeting. It's all fleeting. Um, and, and karma simply means cause and effect. We, t- we Westerners, <laughs> we have, you know, we're a litigious, especially in the United States, I think, although maybe maybe also in, in, uh, in the UK, I don't know, we have the same legal system basis, but um, our legal system, you know, we're a litigious, uh, litigious uh, uh, society. We, we like to sue people, and we it's as if we have this ethic that says, um, if I'm suffering, it's somebody else's fault, and they need to pay me. Right. right. <laughs> That's kind yes. of the Western idea. It, and, and, and another another way of Westerners Westerners think, and you know, me too. Back in the days that I, before I started studying karma in myself, it, it used to think also, oh well, karma will get the person who just hurt me. Yes. Right. That's well, that's a <laughs> that's a pathetic view. It's, it's pathetic because it's it's just more self interest, you know, and self righteousness, but. Karma is created in the mind, principally. There's also karma of speech and action and so on. But the the most powerful determinants of karma have to do with intention, which is motivation, which comes from the condition of your mind. And so if the mind is focused on oneself um, and uh, one is therefore heedless, uh, or relatively heedless of the needs and suffering and uh, sorrows and and, um, uh, and and lacks and losses of others, um, every word and action um, that arises from that condition of mind of intense self-grasping um, is. Uh, a karmic seed, let's say, of more self-grasping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's both in single instances of karmic cause or karmic causation and also in establishing karmic predisposition, which we call karmic tendency. So, you know, the tendency, the inertial vector is to continue doing what you've always done. So the more you're laying down seeds of self-interest, the more you're going to be imprisoned in self-interest. So this is interesting because um, one of the things that was coming up for me as you were discussing this, and even as I was reading the book, uh, as I now recall, is that um, in different spiritual traditions, there there can be this ideal of service. Yeah. Now, it might be configured as service to your fellow human being, it might be configured as service to God or something higher, some higher principle. Um, and, um, and I think, in, in effect, it, 
it moves in the same direction that you are um, discussing here in terms of directing your awareness towards the well-being of others. Mm-hmm. But um, but the distinction that, that that I'm seeing in you know in your commentary and in what you've just said is that is that the, it, at least in the Tibetan Buddhist formulation, it's about the mind. The mind and intention arising in the mind, and sustained in the mind, um, which then results in action, is what is what um, actually uh, is is creating the various different directions of karma, if you will. Is that does that sound right? Uh, well, I, th- I think it sounds partially right. Yes, it, in that mo- everything arises from mo- everything's motivated in some way. You know, the, the condition of the mind is going to determine how you see things and therefore how you act and speak and so on. Mm-hmm. But and I'm not a scholar at all. I, I hope that that's probably very clear already. But there's there, there's also karma that attaches to acts that even don't have an intention of causing harm. Right. Okay. So, for example, there's always in every Dharma discussion, there's always eventually a discussion about bugs and killing bugs and mm-hmm. insects, you know? Right. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It comes up all the time. Sure. So, so if, if you step on a bug unintentionally, you still get the karma of having killed the bug. Uh, but you don't have the karma of intending to kill the bug and then the other karma of having satisfaction in having done that. So there's three elements of karma, I, and again, there are more. It's more precise than that, but mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not a master of that. So, but if you have the karma, if you have the intention to kill the bug, and you try to kill the bug and you don't succeed, you have the karma. As I understand it, I could be wrong. That you you have the intention, so you have the karma of the intention, which is the most powerful determinant of karma. But you don't have the karma of effectuation, of, of having done the act. And so, and but, and you don't have the karma, therefore, of, of being pleased with having killed the bug. So similarly, the, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But if you have the intention of kill the bug, you kill the bug, and then you're delighted that you killed the bug. That's a triple whammy. Got it. So, so what's coming up for me is that is is you know in in the model I was describing of service, where where service yes. is understood to be uh, a primary consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, of practice, um, there is, um, how can I put it, authentic, intentional service. There's mechanical service. There's at least that distinction. That is yeah. to say, you, you, um, uh, you know, I grew up uh, Catholic, so you, you do the sign of the cross, um, which is an invocation. But if you're doing it mechanically, it's different than when you're doing it with the intention to invoke a um, uh, and evoke a uh, uh, a reflection of something higher, is that mm-hmm. and 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 so and so these levels are are interesting, and um, and that's why this discussion is interesting to me because um, I don't think we often think about these distinctions. Like uh, the three levels that you just discussed about, yeah. you know, s- swatting a mosquito or something. So I want to uh, add something in here that uh, came up. I think you referenced something that your teacher, Garchen Rinpoche, said that was that, you know, we have these seeds within us 
and conditions will cause them to sprout. But if we are paying attention and are aware of the arising, we can let go of it and thereby change the ultimate trajectory of that karmic impulse. Well, I just have to say that these seeds don't exist within us. We plant them. Yeah, maybe, but uh, I guess we plant them in a in a stream of uh, living and being that we may not yeah. consciously have access to. That, and that's what I mean. I mean, if if me as a practitioner, uh, the way to, in a sense, to the, the the first step in changing karma is by being aware of the seeds that uh, yeah. within oneself. That that ultimately, one as you say, I, I agree that. You have to you have to affect a sense of responsibility. Otherwise, uh, you can't. It's just meaningless. Otherwise, right? You can't. You can't yeah. do anything. You, you you know. Yeah. I remember my uh, my own teacher used to uh, tell me that uh, in my very first days of working with him that I I was responsible for everything. And yeah. he said, you know, if an airplane falls on your head, you know, you're responsible. Yeah. And. Yeah. And you know what's in, you know, interesting about that, and this is something that's hard for Westerners to see, because Westerners may want to, you know, kind of pick this apart. And uh, uh, but allegorically, just holding that and living that and bringing that down into your heart uh, is a transformative kind of relationship, because then you are responsible. You feel that responsibility, and you. Uh, are aware of the consequences of your expression on as it touches other people. I, I think that's a, a a beautiful and very concise little uh, gem of wisdom about how studying karma also opens us to the great love. Well, I, I also want to take it a slightly, slightly different direction because in page 148, you have a couple of paragraphs that's, that really struck me when I read them. So I'm, and I'll, I'll just read some parts. Uh, you say, a uniquely dangerous form of aversion, repulsion, is self-hatred. Taken to its, to its end, it is suicide, which Garchin Rinpoche has called the extreme of self-grasping. And it is so mistaken, so deluded. We can harbor such negativity towards ourselves when, in fact, our true nature is untouchable, impeccable, indestructible. So um, then uh, on the next paragraph, um, you you say, when the negative karma is purifying and suffering is rolling right over you, don't reject the suffering. Acknowledge it and accept it as your own creation. And now the gift of karmic completion. So, um, I mean, the reason this this passage struck me when I read it was because we read of of the high levels of of self destruction that many young people in the United States, at least, and I think yeah. elsewhere, yeah. are experiencing in this in this these very difficult times that we're going through. And, uh, in fact, I just saw uh, on, on a posting on Facebook today the child of, of, of a friend who's, of course, doing uh, um, 
schooling uh, at home mm-hmm. uh, by di- by distance learning. Wrote this little. She she posted this uh, a copy of this note that that her son wrote, which was something. I'm, I'm I'll paraphrase it because I don't remember the exact phrasing. Um, in these in, in these um, difficult times, can I? Can I go out to play a little bit earlier today? <laughs> and and it's both charming and oh, a little clever manipulative, but Maybe quite manipulative, but really good. <laughs> yes, really. really, really good. And uh, yeah. I, I'm, I mean, I, I think this the son is not at the age where where this suicide stuff the negative stuff the super negative stuff is coming up and yet and yet um and yet it seems to be a, um a rising tide of um this uh these forms of uh, of um self-hatred that have consequences um that um, a book like yours is, I think, intended to provide some medicine for. I think so. Uh, it, it certainly does for me. Um, I, I uh, really suffered deeply from um, thinking most of my life, from youth until through early adulthood, that there was something wrong with me, not meaning I had a mental illness or a physical defect or whatever, but something wrong with my meanness, you mm-hmm. know, with my essence of me. Right. And I, I know I am far from alone in that. If, if you scratch the surface of anybody who's suffering um, in, the, in the mind and emotions, uh, at some point we're going to come to some even if it's a very subtle wisp of that, of I, I'm not, I'm not okay. I'm not all right. Something's wrong with me. I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. Enough. I'm not this. I'm not that. Or I am this, and I ought not to be. There's, it's in so many minds, and uh, the, the young people in the um, in adolescence, and you know. Uh, Early adolescence and right on up uh, to you know to the twenties, a lot of what's going on is self trying to understand one's place in the world and who one is in relation to other people and what one is here for. How do I have a purpose? And um, and it those kinds of questions are in the minds and hearts of young people of every status and every. Uh, every station of life and um, for many it's not obvious uh, any longer what the prescribed route is to become uh, a viable adult um, the, some of the examples are not so clear that that's viable you know right. and um, I think it's it, you know the word anomi mm-hmm. um, a, a, a state of uh, where there's the destruction of the value system, or there is no value system. Do you know that word? Am I using that correctly? I, I, well, I, I, I think I think that is at least part true, and 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 sufficient to invite you to continue with your comment. I'm sorry, I got lost in the last clause there. What was? 
<laughs> I think you've got it. I think I think the meaning is right, and I'd like you to continue your comment about anomie. Anomie. Well, uh, a a n o m i e. I should yes, say for right. Anomie. Yeah. Um, it seems that we, are, as a society, and I don't know about other societies, because I'm living in the United States now for many years, and mm-hmm. um, but there is not clear what values uh, and ideals <laughs> the society holds in common anymore. Yeah. It's no longer clear. Wow. And, uh, the goodness of the proliferation of different ways of thinking and access to them, the goodness of that is accompanied by the shock to the system that would like to have certainty at all costs. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there's confusion. And what confusion means in the in the Buddha Dharma, as I, I have understood it, is ignorance. It's not understanding the actual nature of reality. And so one's life is then predicated upon either fictions that are constantly needing to be rewritten, or uh, desperate searches for certainty that crumbles, um, and basically a process of constantly creating something to identify with and to identify as, and that's a very, very fragile way to live. Yeah, it is. It is, uh, um, and um, I heard a I heard a twenty year old young man on on the radio a few days ago discuss how he was uh, going to vote for Trump because of values. He considered himself a values voter, but I think it's those values that you're the, the fragility of those values that you're referring to. And, and the reason people cling so hard or grasp so hard after um, those ideas about values. And um, yeah, as you and say, it is not, it's, it doesn't lead to happiness or joy. No, but it, it is at an even deeper level than than uncertainty about values is the uncertainty about the viability of self. Yeah, because it's it's based on a falsehood. Right. And so, and so, it can never you can never be confident in whatever identity without you created an understanding on or in without constantly buttressing it or you know. Right. Uh, it, it, it's a that's why the spiritual path that's why the spiritual path yeah, you know? indeed, well, and that's a good point, unfortunately, because we've come to the end of our first hour. So, <laughs> so we will crack open the uh, the illusory nature of the self in the second part of the show. <laughs> <laughs> but, but right now, we're going to do some you announcements. Need to be generously so, and with strong intentions, right? <laughs> indeed. You are listening to the Mystical Positivist. We have to take a short break at the hour. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me as co-host are Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Barbara Dubois, Ph.D. Barbara is a longtime teacher of the Tibetan uh, Buddha Dharma and the author of the recently published Brave, Generous, and Undefended Heart Teachings of the 37 Practices from White Cloud Press. Musical selections on today's program are from a CD called Lama Gurme and Jean-Philippe Riquiel, Reign of Blessings, Vajra Chants. Thank you. 
back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Barbara Dubois. Barbara Dubois, Ph.D., longtime teacher of Buddha Dharma, is known for the clarity, freshness, humor, and fearless love with which she shines a frank Western light on the path. Her principal gurus are Padmasambhava, Milarepa, Machig, H. H. Dudram Rinpoche, and H. E. Garchen Rinpoche. Barbara's lifetime of service includes work with disarmament, African refugees from colonial regimes and genocide, United Nations social development, feminist scholarship and teaching, and initiating an indigenous women's peace movement during active civil war in Africa. She holds the doctorate from Harvard University and is taught at undergraduate and graduate levels as social scientist, psychologist, and psychotherapist. Barbara is also a visual artist and author of Light Years, a spiritual memoir from 2011, and the newly published Brave, Generous, and Undefended Heart Teachings on the 37 Bodhisattva Practices. She currently resides in Arizona. So to get us going for this second hour, I'm going to read uh, a short passage, uh, an appendix actually, uh, from... Uh, Barbara's book, Brave, Generous, and Undefended. And this is called The Four Opponent Powers to Purify Negative Actions of Body, Speech, or Mind. So the first one of the four is regret. Generate sincere, profound remorse and regret for the specific negativities of body, speech, or mind which you need to purify. The practice of regret can at first be painful, as we recall our harmful acts, Offer your own pain to relieve the pain of others, and as you practice, the pain of regret transforms into gratitude. Do the practice of regret gently. It is a gift, not a punishment. As you feel able, you may also, over time, recall your negativities of this and all lifetimes, 
generating regret for them as well as for all those you cannot now recall. Bodhisattvas generate sincere regret also for the negativities of all sentient beings, offering this practice of the four opponent powers for their merit and liberation. The second is reliance. Rely on the wisdom being or the wisdom in which you have great faith and devotion. Make offerings, mental and or physical, and supplications. With sincere remorse and strong confidence and faith, confess your thoughts, words, and actions that now give you the heartache of regret. Relying and practicing on this spiritual friend or spiritual truth is relying on a pure support to purify your negative deeds of body, speech, and mind. The third, remedy. In a general sense, the remedy is the opposite of the negativity to be purified. For example, for anger, practice patience devoid of hostility. For grasping, practice generosity. For harming others, practice harmlessness and benefiting others, and so forth. Since all negativities of body, speech, or mind involve one's own confusion rooted in self-grasping, remedy in all cases calls for generating bodhicitta, the altruistic intention. Specifically, there's the remedy of the particular practice you are doing and the particular support upon which you are relying in the second instruction above, reliance. And finally, resolve. Make firm resolve and commitment to abandon these negative actions of body, speech, and mind. In the event of lapse, repeat these four steps, and especially supplicate the Lama or that in which you have great faith for the courage and commitment born of great love and compassion. His Eminence Garchan Rinpoche says that practicing the four opponent powers will purify even the greatest negativity. So with that, we invite... Uh, Barbara back into the conversation with that reading from her book. Welcome. Yes, and, the, and there's one one sentence more uh, in the um, text yes. that, that you were reading from. Gartrimpache also says that we can purify by giving rise to bodhicitta and by realizing the true nature. In an instant, all can be purified. Um, may I comment a little bit on this? Please, I hope you will. Yeah. Um, I want to speak to two things. Uh, one is the concept of negativity. Um, it, I remember when I first met um, in this lifetime people who were practicing um, uh, on the spiritual path um, and uh, they spoke of negativity and I didn't understand at all what it meant. I thought it meant that, you know, one had a dirty mind or that one wished uh, actual harm on others. And uh, I had a, a, a very kind of materialized base for thinking about negativity. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about um, happiness and suffering, we're talking about it's good to think in terms of what causes happiness, what brings suffering, um, and uh, in that context, negativity, uh, it, it, we can we can say it's that which covers the naturally arising light, uh, the naturally indwelling light of comprehension, of sympathy, of fellow feeling, of uh, seeking the good, mm -hmm. seeking the good, uh, not just for oneself but for all. So that 
that light we can also refer to as the light of clear awareness um, with which we are able to see our own motivations. We're able to see that which is arising in our minds, not necessarily in others, but in ourselves, and, and being able to see when our, uh, our minds are uh, churning with self-thoughts, thoughts about, oh, I want this, or I'm suffering because I don't have that, or that person did this, or and it made me sad or mad. The, the self-thought is uh, a prescription for, um, well, it's a sign of confusion, and it's a prescription for more confusion. And when we're churning like that about self, um, that is negativity in the sense that it's not, it's not the positive charge of love. Mm-hmm. It's the negative charge of deprivation or uh, scarcity or or sorrow or anger, you know. Um, so in related to that is the concept of purification, um, because that's used a lot in the four opponent powers. It's considered a purifi- purification practice. So but in, in the Buddha Dharma, as I've uh, had the opportunity to study and practice it, it's clear that purification isn't, uh, a material concept like scrubbing a greasy pot uh, to get it clean. It's not as if we have besmirched ourselves in some fundamental way that cannot be uh, transformed, can't be lifted. Uh, purity, purification really means sweeping away that which obscures our ability to see things as they are uh, and to see ourselves as we are to see the true nature of things. Um, so to purify something simply means to, uh, to, make it, to make what it actually is more visible to us. Well, that, um, that gets back to the uh, self-hatred that we were talking about um, earlier in the first hour, it seems to me. Let's say more about that connection. Well, um, the self it seems to me that that the um, material about self hatred, whereas uh, uh, connecting it to, um, or actually you and your text connected to suicide, and um, mm-hmm. um, uh, the uh, incidence of su- uh, suicide increasing among young people, um, is is related then to this idea that you've just expressed that there's actually nothing that needs uh, scrubbing as you said you do use that metaphor in the book by the way that you just uh, yeah, uh, referenced it's, it's about the pot yes and and uh the, the, and the thought that I, I talked about about my own uh, experience as a younger person of thinking that there was something wrong with me yeah well exactly there never was and there never will be anything wrong with any of us at the level of uh, essential nature, of the level of our true nature. So, uh, it, it's never, it can't even be stained. So the, so I'm sorry. So, so, so when Garfield Rinpoche then says, in an instant all can be purified, the instant he refers to there is the instant of awakening when you see by a penetrating insight, which might be just a glimpse, or it might be an insight that uh, changes everything in your life, you know, turns everything upside down, and you suddenly have a different kind of existence, then an instant all to be purified is that in in the instant in which you actually directly perceive who and what you really are, 
you perceive who and what everybody really is, and you perceive the actual nature of all phenomena that in existential reality are constantly changing, but in essence, uh, they're empty of that which is constantly changing, and they're, uh, they're unchanging. Unborn and unchanging is the way we describe the true nature of reality and of ourselves. So that's what he means, nothing to be purified. And so we do purification practices like this uh, in order to see that, in order to, to you know, in the Christian formulation, to take the scales from our own eyes. Yeah, there's a, a sense I have of the relationship to grasping, the self-grasping that you describe, and negativity, even the slightest shade of self-grasping is the birth of negativity, as I understand it. I, I think that's well put, yeah. And and so the, uh, what I got from, um, I think, one, uh, the discussion about, you know, as you say, with purification, it, it's, it's that when you see that, when you can actually see, have a space to see that and see oneself, grasping after this notion of self and that can relax a little bit uh, uh, I definitely agree that, that that's suddenly it, it's like what's true for oneself is true for everything mm-hmm. and yeah. we had a uh, a friend on uh, the uh, radio show a few weeks ago um, at this point probably months ago um, who with someone who had done many, many, many years of practice and had had sort of a not such a great relationship with her previous teacher, left the community, uh, but had still had a long foundation of meditative work. And the way she articulated this was that she was having a crisis. Her mind was a mess. You know, she was having you know all sorts of psychological problems. And so she realized she had to bring her practice to bear to deal with it and could touch that clarity within that changeless clarity. And there came a moment for her where she had to make a choice. And it's very dramatic for her because she's like, I have to choose either my attention's going to go there in the mess or it's going to go here in the, uh, uh, nature of being that doesn't change. And once she made that choice and was clear about making that choice, Obviously, mm-hmm. her life had to unfold and to reify that choice more and more. But mm-hmm. that moment was the freeing. Of, mm-hmm. And, you know, she used, you know, non-technical words for this, but it's it's like it feels to me like what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, it it's like, the diff- again, I go back to the Christian teachings that I received as a child, you know, that first you see through a glass darkly and then you see face to face. Mm-hmm. When you see what is, uh, when you see truth, you you see truth. You know, you recognize it. You, you, the light shines. When you're when you're caught in falsehood, there's nothing but confusion. Confusion building on confusion, and I mean, we all have had experiences of both of those states, and they can be, you know, in simple little mundane circumstances that you see. Oh. I was reading from the wrong page. It's this, this other page I meant to read, you know, and, and, and there's clarity. The clarity is what sees that. And, and and then there can also be something at the far end of the spectrum of, oh, I just saw, I just saw what love is. Mm. 
I thought it was something else. I thought it was somebody, you know, giving me things. Oh, see, it's me giving, me giving, not me trying to get. And confusion falls away in those moments. Literally, it's like scales falling from the eye. It's, it, or or my, my root lama once said, it's like suddenly a, a, a towel is removed from the top of your head. <laughs> and yeah. or, 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 or maybe it was covering your whole head, and suddenly you can see. Oh, what a relief. So, so in the book, um, you have a section on Tonglen practice, which is yeah. a Tibetan, I guess I might call it a visualization practice, in which we uh, try to imagine people who are close to us, people who are neutral to us, and people that we really can't stand, and to send them uh, love, to send them positive attention. And I wanted to, you know, talk a little bit about that because, you know, sometimes when we speak about uh, giving and generosity and love, um, in our Western material minds, we think about giving stuff, you know, so if I buy you some flowers, you know, clearly I love you. Uh, but the the most simplest form of giving is giving our attention, and for mm. and for people that we're not willing to be around, people that we cross the street to avoid, people that we don't want to think about, you know, we're withholding our attention. Mm. And what I appreciate about the the way you describe the Tonglen practice is that it's a it really is a practice, it's an exercise because we're confronting the resistance in ourselves to withhold our attention from another. And well, yes, go yeah, go, go, please go ahead. Well, there are two practices here that you're talking about. Um, one is the practice of of developing the base that allows us to do tonglen. The base is called equanimity, um, and that's the one where you do the exercise with people one you love, one you you know feel neutral towards, and one you can't stand until you can actually experience the same level of authentic affection and warmth for all three categories, mm. without regard to your personal preference. So it's that state of not being caught in personal preference, which actually is a state of self-grasping. When you're caught in personal preference, that is arising from self-grasping. So not being caught in, in, in self-reference, and, in, and therefore not giving a rise to preference, uh, that's the state in which one can practice authentic tonlen, uh. which is the practice of giving and receiving. It means that you are uh, inviting the suffering of others to come to you, not to take on in your personality, physically-based person, but in that come into the bodhicitta in your heart that you have been generating. It's like a fire in the heart. And so you invite the suffering of the other to come into the bodhicitta fire in your heart, that warmth, that love in your own heart, and there it transforms naturally without your having to make any effort. It transforms naturally into bodhicitta and then flows out again on the outbreath uh, to the being, that, being or beings or situations that you were uh, inviting the suffering from. So that's the exchanging of self for others, but you can't do that very authentically or very effectively if you're caught in grasping to self and rejection of another. Uh, because one of the con one of the 
ways in which human beings tend to react when they're not capable yet of great compassion is that we we're repulsed by suffering and we want to push it away from us we're frightened by it we don't want to take on other people's suffering so uh, coming to that state of equanimity where all are held in a, a state of uh, of warmth and, and compassion and caring uh, is, is a is a wonderful ground on which then we can sit to practice bodhicitta with an authentic uh, altruistic motivation hmm. yeah I'm reminded of a um a book uh, that I read years ago by uh, the fourth way uh, writer uh, Jacob Needleman called Lost Christianity and he spoke about how you know in Christianity there's an admonition to love another like yourself Yeah. but what's missing is from most of the common forms the non-esoteric forms of Christianity is a method by which you get to that place and so I, that's coming up for me because it's uh, you, you put this very well that it, the cultivation of equanimity, the actual steps that one takes with one's attention in practice to develop equanimity is a necessary precursor to loving another as yourself. I really appreciate the way you speak about attention in relation to this because it's I remember when I was thinking about this in the in the course of working on that section of the book that I I realized you know it's really not that easy to even get us to pay authentic attention to other people to other beings or or to other conditions in life it's like we're so self-involved mm-hmm. that to actually pay attention is really a significant first step. <laughs> Yeah, and there's lots of forces uh, these days uh, uh, with social media and and screens and things like that to uh, give us an easy out with our attention. Yeah, yeah, it's easy not to pay attention. So um, another section of the book, it's uh, it's addressing uh, verses 25 to 30 of the uh, 37 Bodhisattva Practices is your uh, chapter uh, five on the six perfections. And and uh, for um, listeners who may not uh, be aware, this, this is... Uh, this is not peculiar to Tibetan Buddhism. It's mm-hmm. wide, widely accepted throughout 